Chapter 6 of Vice Versa by F. Ainstay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Vice Versa by F. Anstey. Chapter 6 Learning and Accomplishments I subscribe to Lucian. Tis an elegant thing which cheereth up the mind, exerciseth the body, delights the spectators, which teaches many comely gestures, equally affecting the ears, eyes, and soul itself. Burton on Dancing What is this? asked Dr. Grimstone in his most blood-curdling tone after a most impressive pause at the dormitory door. Mr. Bultitude held his tongue but kept fast hold of his chair, which he held before him as a defense against either party, while Coggs remained motionless in the center of the room with crooked knees and hands dangling impotently. Will one of you be good enough to explain how you come to be found struggling in this unseemly manner? I sent you up here to meditate on your past behavior. I should be most happy to meditate, sir, protested Paul, lowering his chair on discovering that there was no immediate danger. If that, that bloodthirsty young ruffian there would allow me to do so, I'm going about in bodily fear of him, Dr. Grimstone. I want him bound over to keep the peace. I decline to be left alone with him. He's not safe. Is that so, Coggs? Are you mean and base enough to take this cowardly revenge on a boy who has had the moral courage to expose your deceit? For your ultimate good, a boy who is unable to defend himself against you? He can fight when he chooses, sir, said Coggs. He blacked my eye last term, sir. I assure you, said Paul, with a convincing earnestness of truth, that I never blacked anybody's eye in the whole course of my life. I am not, ah, a pugnacious man. My age and, hum, my position ought to protect me from these scandals. You've come back this year, sir, said Dr. Grimstone, with a very odd way of talking of yourself an exceedingly odd way, unless I see you abandoning it and behaving like a reasonable boy again, I shall be forced to conclude you intend some disrespect and open defiance by it. If you would allow me an opportunity of explaining my position, sir, said Paul, I would undertake to clear your mind directly of such a monstrous idea. I am trying to assert my rights, Dr. Grimstone my rights as a citizen, as a householder. This is no place for me, and I appeal to you to set me free, if you only knew one-tenth. Let us understand one another, Bultitude, interrupted the doctor. You may think it an excellent joke to talk nonsense to me like this, but let me tell you there is a point where a jest becomes an insult. I've spared you hitherto out of consideration for the feelings of your excellent father, who is so anxious that you should become an object of pride and credit to him, 
but if you dare to treat me to any more of this bombast about explaining your rights, you will force me to exercise one of mine, the right to inflict corporal punishment, sir, which you have just seen in operation upon another. Oh, said Mr. Bultitude, faintly feeling utterly crestfallen, and he could say nothing more. As for those illicit luxuries in your play-box, continued the doctor, the fact that you brought the box up as it was in your favor, and I am inclined on reflection to overlook the affair, if you can assure me that you were no party to their being put there. On the contrary, said Paul, I gave the strictest orders that there was to be no such useless extravagance. I objected to have the kitchen and housekeeper's rooms ransacked to make a set of rascally boys ill for a fortnight at my expense. The doctor stared slightly at this credible but unnatural view of the subject. However, as he could not quarrel with the sentiment, he let the matter of expressing it pass unrebuked for the present, and, after sentencing, cog to two days detention and the copying of innumerable french verbs he sent the ill-matched pair down to the schoolroom to join their respective classes paul went resignedly downstairs and into the room where he found mr blinkhorn at the head of one of the long tables taking a class of about a dozen boys "'Take your Livy and Latin primer, Bultitude,' said Mr. Blinkhorn mildly, "'and sit down.' Mr. Blinkhorn was a tall, angular man with a long neck and slightly drooping head. He had thin, wiry brown hair and a plain face with short-sighted, kind brown eyes. In character he was mild and reserved, too conscientious to allow himself the luxury of either favorites or aversions among the boys, all of whom in his secret soul he probably disliked about equally, though he neither said nor did anything to show it. Paul took a book, any book, for he did not know or care to know one from another, and sat down at the end furthest from the master, inwardly rebelling at having an education thus forced upon him at his advanced years but seeing no escape at dinner-time he resolved desperately i will insist on speaking out but just now it's simply prudent to humour them the rest of the class drew away from him with marked coldness and occasionally saluted him when mr blinkhorn's attention was called away with terms and grimaces which Paul, although he failed thoroughly to understand them, felt instinctively were not intended as compliments. Mr. Blinkhorn's notion of discipline was qualified by a sportsmanlike instinct which forbade him to harass a boy already in trouble, as he understood young Bultitude had been, and so he forbore from pressing him to take any share in the class work. Mr. Bultitude, therefore, was saved from any necessity of betraying his total ignorance of his author, and sat gloomily on the hard form, impatiently watching the minute hand skulk around the mean dull face of the clock above the chimney-piece, 
while around him one boy after another droned out a listless translation of the work before him interrupted by mild corrections and comments from the master what a preposterous change from all his ordinary habits at this very time only twenty-four hours since he was stepping slowly and majestically toward his accustomed omnibus which was waiting with deference for him to overtake it he was taking his seat saluted respectfully by the conductor and cheerily by his fellow passengers as a man of recognized mark and position now that omnibus would halt at the corner of westbourne terrace in vain and go on its way bankwards without him he was many miles away in the very last place where anyone would be likely to look for him occupying the post of whipping boy to his miserable son was ever an inoffensive and respectable gentleman placed in a more false and ridiculous position if he had only kept his drawer locked and hidden the abominable garuda stone away from dick's prying eyes if he had let the moralizing alone if bowler had not been so long fetching that cab or if he had not happened to faint at the critical moment what an immense difference any one of these apparent trifles would have made and now what was he to do to get out of this incongruous and distasteful place it was all very well to say that he had only to insist upon a hearing from the doctor but what if as he had very grave reasons to fear the doctor should absolutely refuse to listen should even proceed to carry out his horrible threat must he remain there till the holidays came to release him suppose dick as he certainly would unless he was quite a fool declined to receive him during the holidays it was absolutely necessary to return home at once every additional hour he passed in imprisonment made it harder to regain his lost self now and then he roused himself from all these gloomy thoughts to observe his companions the boys at the upper end near mr blinkhorn were fairly attentive and he noticed one small smug-faced boy about halfway up who while a classmate was faltering and blundering over some question would cry i know sir let me tell him ask me sir in a restless agony of superior information down by paul however the discipline was relaxed enough as perhaps could only be expected on the first day of term one wild-eyed long-haired boy had brought out a small china figure with which and the assistant of his right hand draped in a pocket-handkerchief and wielding a penholder he was busy enacting a drama based on the lines of punch and judy to the breathless amusement of his neighbors mr bultitude might have hoped to escape notice by a policy of judicious self-effacement but unhappily his long blank uninterested face was held by his companions to bear an implied reproach and being delicately sensitive on this point they kicked his legs viciously which made him extremely glad when dinner-time came although he felt too faint and bilious to be tempted by anything but the lightest and daintiest luncheon 
but at dinner he found with a shudder that he was expected to swallow a thick ragged section of boiled mutton which had been carved and heaped so long before he sat down to it that the stagnant gravy was chilled and congealed into patches of greasy white he managed to swallow it with many pauses of invincible disgust only to find it replaced by a solid slab of pale brown suet pudding sparsely bedewed with unctuous black treacle this though a plentiful and by no means unwholesome fare for growing boys was not what he had been accustomed to and feeling far too heavy and unwell after it to venture upon an encounter with the doctor he wandered slow and melancholy round the, the bare gravelled playground during the half hour after dinner devoted to the inevitable chevy until the doctor appeared at the head of the staircase it is always sad for the historian to have to record a departure from principle and i have to confess with shame on mr bultitude's account that feeling the doctor's eye upon him and striving to perpetuate him he humiliated himself so far as to run about with an elaborate affection of zest and his exertions were rewarded by hearing himself cordially encouraged to further efforts it cheered and emboldened him i've put him in a good temper he told himself if i can only keep him in one till evening i really think i might be able to go up and tell him what a ridiculous mess i've got into why should i care after all at least i've done nothing to be ashamed of it's an accident that might have happened to any man it is a curious and unpleasant thing that however reassuring and convincing the arguments may be with which we succeed in bracing ourselves to meet or disregard unpleasantness the force of those arguments seldom or never outlasts the frame of mind in which they are composed and when the unpleasantness is at hand there we are just as unreasonably alarmed at it as ever mr bultitude's confidence faded away almost as soon as he found himself in the schoolroom again he found himself assigned to a class at one end of the room where mr tinkler presently introduced a new rule in algebra to them in such a manner as to procure for it a lasting unpopularity with all those who were not too much engaged in drawing duels and railway trains upon their slates to attend although paul did not draw upon his slate his utter ignorance of algebra prevented him from being much edified by the cabalistic signs on the blackboard which mr tinkler seemed to chalk up dubiously and rub out again as soon as possible with an air of being ashamed of them so he tried to nerve himself for the coming ordeal by furtively watching and studying the doctor who was taking a xenophon class at the upper end of the room and being in fairly good humour was combining instruction with amusement in a manner peculiarly his own he stopped the construing occasionally to illustrate some word or passage by an anecdote he condescended to enliven the translation here and there by a familiar and colloquial paraphrase 
he magnanimously refrained from pressing any obviously convenient questions and his manner generally was marked by a geniality which was additionally piquant from its extreme uncertainty mr bultitude could not help thinking it a rather ghastly form of gaiety but he hoped it might last presently however someone brought him a blue envelope on a tray he read it and a frown gathered on his face the boy who was translating at the time went on again in his former slipshod manner which had hitherto provoked only jovial criticism and correction with complete self-complacency but found himself sternly brought to book and burdened by a heavy imposition before he quite realized that his blunders had ceased to amuse then began a season of sore trial and tribulation for the class the doctor suddenly withdrew the light of his countenance from them and sunshine was succeeded by blackest thunderclouds the wind was no longer tempered to the more closely shorn of the flock the weakest vessels were put on unexpectedly at crucial passages and coming hopelessly to grief were denounced as impostors and idlers till half the class was dissolved in tears a few of the better grounded stood the fire like the remnant of an old guard with faces pale from alarm and trembling voices but perfect accuracy they answered all the doctor's searching inquiries after the paradigms of greek verbs that seemed irregular to the verge of impropriety paul saw it all with renewed misgivings if i were there he thought i should have been run out and flogged long ago how angry those stupid young idiots are making him how can i go up and speak to him when he's like that and yet i must i'm sitting on dynamite as it is the very first time they want me to answer any questions from some of their books, I shall be ruined. Why wasn't I better educated when I was a boy? Or why didn't I make a better use of my opportunities? It will be a bitter thing if they thrash me for not knowing as much as Dick. Grimstone's coming this way now. It's all over with me. The Greek class had managed to repel the enemy, with some loss to themselves and the doctor now left his place for a moment and came down towards the bench on which paul sat trembling the storm however had passed over for the present and he only said with restored calmness who were the boys who learnt dancing last term one or two of them said that they had done so and dr grimstone continued mr burdekin was unable to give you the last lesson of his course last term and has arranged to take you to-day as he will be in the neighbourhood so be off at once to mrs grimstone and change your shoes bultitude you learnt last term too go with the others mr bultitude was too overcome by this unexpected attack to contradict it though of course he was quite able to do so but then if he had he must have explained all and he felt strongly that just then was neither the time nor the place for particulars it would have been wiser perhaps it would certainly have brought matters to a crisis 
if he could have forced himself to tell everything, the whole truth and all its outrageous improbability. But he could not. Let those who feel inclined to blame him for lack of firmness consider how difficult and delicate a business it must almost of necessity be for anyone to declare openly in the teeth of common sense and plain facts that there has been a mistake and in point of fact he is not his own son but his own father i suppose i must go he thought i needn't dance haven't danced since i was a young man but i can't afford to offend him just now and so he followed the rest into a sort of cloakroom where the tall hats which the boys wore on sundays were all kept on shelves in white band boxes and there his hair was brushed his feet were thrust into very shiny patent leather shoes and a pair of kid gloves was given out to him to put on the dancing lesson was to be held in the dining hall from which the savor of mutton had not altogether departed when paul came in he found that floor cleared and the tables and forms piled up on one side of the room Biddlecombe and Tipping and some of the smaller boys were there already, their gloves and shiny shoes giving them a feeling of ceremony and constraint which they tried to carry off by an uncouth parody of politeness. Siggers was telling stories of the dances he had been to in town and the fine girls whose step had exactly suited his own and Tipping was leaning gloomily against the wall listening to something Chawner was whispering in his ear. There was a rustling of dresses down the stairs outside, and two thin little girls, looking excessively proper and prim, came in with an elderly gentlewoman who was their governess, and wore a pince-nez to impart the necessary suggestion of a superior intellect. They were the Miss Mutlows, sisters of one of the day boarders, and attended the course by special favor as friends of Dulcie's, who followed them in with a little gleam of shy anticipation in her eyes. The Miss Mutlows sat stiffly down on a form, one on each side of her governess, and all three stared solemnly at the boys, who began to blush vividly under the inspection to unbutton and rebutton their gloves with great care and to shift from leg to leg in an embarrassed manner. Dulcie soon singled out poor Mr. Bultitude, who, mindful of Tipping's warning, was doing his very best to avoid her. She ran straight to him, laid her hand on his arm, and looked into his face pleadingly. Dick, she said, you're not sulky still, are you? Mr. Bultitude had borne a good deal already, and, not being remarkably sweet-natured, he shook the little hand away, half petulant and half alarmed. "'I do wish you wouldn't do this sort of thing in public. You'll compromise me, you know,' he said nervously. Dulcie opened her grey eyes wide, and then a flush came into her cheeks, and she made a little disdainful upward movement of her chin. "'You didn't mind at once,' she said. "'I thought you might want to dance with me. "'You liked to last term, "'but I'm sure I don't care if you choose to be disagreeable. "'Go and dance with Mary Mutlow. 
if you want to, though you did say she danced like a pair of compasses. And I shall tell her you said so too, and you know you're not a good dancer yourself. Are you going to dance with Mary? Paul stamped. I tell you I never dance, he said. I can't dance any more than a lamppost. You don't seem an ill-natured little girl, but why on earth can't you let me alone? Dulcie's eyes flashed. You're a nasty, sulky boy, she said in an angry undertone. All the conversation had, of course, been carried on in whispers. I'll never speak to you or look at you again. You're the most horrid boy in the school, and the ugliest. And she turned proudly away, though anyone who looked might have seen the fire in her eyes extinguished as she did so. Perhaps Tipping did see it, for he scowled at them from his corner. There was another sound outside, as of fiddle strings being twanged by the finger, and, as the boys hastily formed up in two lines down the center of the room, and the Miss Mutlows and Dulcie prepared themselves for the curtsy of state, there came in a little fat man with mutton-chop whiskers and a white face upon which was written an unalterable conviction that his manner and deportment were perfection itself. The two rows of boys bent themselves stiffly from the back, and Mr. Burdekin returned the compliment by an inclusive and stately inclination. "'Good afternoon, madam, young ladies. I trust I find you well. The curtsy just a little lower, Miss Mutlow.' the right foot less drawn back, beautiful, feet closer at the recovery, perfect. Young gentlemen, good evening. Take your usual places, please, all of you, for our preliminary exercises. Now, the chasse round the room. Will you lead off, please, dumber? The hands just slightly touching the shoulders, the head thrown negligently back to balance the figure, the whole deportment easy, but not careless, now, please. And, talking all the time with a metrical fluency, he scraped a little jig on the violin, while Dummer led off a procession which solemnly capered round the room in sundry stages of conscious awkwardness. Mr. Bultitude shuffled along somehow after the rest, with rebellion at his heart and a deep sense of degradation. If my clerks were to see me now, he thought. After some minutes of this, Mr. Burdekin stopped them and directed sets to be formed for the Lancers. Bultitude, said Mr. Burdekin, you will take Miss Mutlow, please. Thank you, said Paul, but ah, uh, I don't dance. Nonsense, nonsense, sir. You are one of the most promising pupils. You mustn't tell me that. Not another word. Come, select your partners. Paul had no option. He was paired off with a tall and rather angular young lady mentioned, while Dulcie looked on pouting and snubbed tipping, who humbly asked for the pleasure of dancing with her, by declaring that she meant to dance with Tom. The dance began to a sort of rhythmical accompaniment by Mr. Burdekin, who intoned, Tops advance, retire and cross, balance at the corners, very nice, Miss Grimstone. More abandon, Shawner. Lift the feet more from the floor. Not so high as that. 
Oh, dear me, that last figure over again. And slide the feet. Oh, slide the feet. Bultitude, you're leaving out all the steps. Paul was dragged, unwilling but unresisting, through it all by his partner, who jerked and pushed him into his place without a word, being apparently under strict orders from the governess, not on any account, to speak to the boys. After the dance, the couples promenaded in a stiff but stately manner round the room to a dirge-like march scraped upon the violin, the boys taking the parts of the ladies jibing away from their partners in a highly unladylike fashion, and the boys burdened with the companionship of the younger Miss Mutlow walking along in a very agony of bashfulness. I suppose, thought Paul, as he led the way with Miss Mary Mutlow, if Dick were ever to hear of this, he'd think it funny. Oh, if I ever get the upper hand of him again. How much longer, I wonder, shall I have to play the fool to this infernal fiddle? But if this was bad, worse was to come. There was another pause in which Mr. Burdekin said blandly, I wonder now if we have forgotten our sailor's hornpipe. Perhaps Bultitude will prove the contrary. If I remember right, he used to perform it with singular correctness. And, let me tell you, there are a great number of spurious hornpipe steps in circulation. Come, sir, oblige me by dancing it alone. This was the final straw. It was not to be supposed for one moment that Mr. Bultitude would lower his dignity in such a preposterous manner. Besides, he did not know how to dance the hornpipe. So he said, I shall do nothing of the sort. I've had quite enough of this, ah, tomfoolery. That is a very impolite manner of declining, Bultitude, highly discourteous and unpolished. I must insist now, really, as a personal matter, upon your going through the sailor's hornpipe. Come, you won't make a scene, I'm sure. You'll oblige me as a gentleman. I tell you I can't, said Mr. Bultitude sullenly. I never did such a thing in my life, and it would be enough to kill me at my age. This is untrue, sir. Do you mean to say you will not dance the hornpipe? No, said Paul. I'll be damned if I do. There was unfortunately no possible doubt about the nature of the word used. He said it so very distinctly. The governess screamed and called her charges to her. Dulcie hid her face, and some of the boys tittered. Mr. Burdekin turned pink. After that disgraceful language, sir, in the presence of the fairer sex, I have no more to do with you. You will have the goodness to stand in the center of that form. Gentlemen, select your partners for the Highland Scottish. Mr. Bultitude, by no means sorry to be free from the irksome necessity of dancing with a heart ill-attuned for enjoyment, got up on the form and stood looking sullenly enough upon the proceedings. The governess glowered at him now and then as a monster of youthful depravity. The Miss Mutlows glanced up at him as they tripped past with curiosity, not unmixed with admiration but Dulcie steadily avoided looking in his direction. 
Paul was just congratulating himself upon his escape when the door opened wide and the doctor marched slowly and imposingly into the room. He did this occasionally, partly to superintend matters and partly as an encouraging mark of approbation. He looked round the class at first with benignant toleration, until his glance took in the bench upon which Mr. Bultitude was set up. Then his eyes slowly travelled up to the level of Paul's head, his expression changing meanwhile to a petrifying glare. It was not, as Paul instinctively felt, exactly the position in which a gentleman who wished to stand well with those in authority over him would prefer to be found. He felt his heart turn to water within him and stared limp and helpless at the doctor. There was an awful silence. Dr. Grimstone was addicted to awful silences, and, indeed, if seldom strictly golden, silence may often be called iron. But at last he inquired, "'And pray what may you be doing up there, sir?' "'Upon my soul I can't say,' said Mr. Bultitude feebly. "'Ask that gentleman there with the fiddle. He knows.' Mr. Burdekin was a good-mannered, easy-tempered little man, and had had already forgotten the affront to his dignity. He was anxious not to get the boy into more trouble. Baltitude was a little inattentive and, I may say, wanting in respect, Dr. Grimstone, he said, putting it as mildly as he could with any accuracy, so I ventured to place him there as a punishment." "'Quite right, Mr. Burdekin,' said the doctor. "'Quite right. I'm sorry that any boy of mine should have caused you to do so. "'You are again beginning your career of disorder and rebellion, are you, sir? "'Go up into the schoolroom at once and write a dozen copies before tea-time. "'A very little more eccentricity and insubordination from you, multitude, "'and you will reap a full reward. "'A full reward, sir.' So Mr. Bultitude was driven out of the dancing class in dire disgrace, which would not have distressed him particularly, being only one more drop in his bitter cup, but that he recognized that now his hopes of approaching the doctor with his burden of wool were fallen like a card-castle. They were fiddled and danced away for at least twenty-four hours, perhaps forever. Bitterly did he brood over this as he slowly and laboriously copied out sundry vain repetitions of such axioms as cultivate habits of courtesy and self-control and true happiness is to be sought in contentment. He saw the prospect of a tolerably severe flogging growing more and more distinct and felt that he could not present himself to his family with the consciousness of having suffered such an indelible disgrace. His family! What would become of them in his absence? Would he ever see his comfortable home in Bayswater again? Tea-time came, and after it evening preparations, when Mr. Tinkler presided in a feeble and ineffective manner, perpetually suspecting that the faint sniggers he heard were indulged in at his own expense and calling perfectly innocent victims to account for them. Paul sat next to Joland and, 
in his desperate anxiety to avoid further unpleasantness found himself as he could not for his life have written a latin or a german composition reduced to copy down his neighbor's exercises this jolin who had looked forward to an arrangement of a very opposite kind nevertheless cheerfully allowed him to do though he expressed doubts as to the wisdom of a servile imitation more perhaps from prudence than conscientiousness jolin in the intervals of study was deeply engaged in the production of a small illustrated work of fiction which he was pleased to call the adventures of ben butterkin at skoll it was in a great measure an autobiography and the cuts depicting the hero's flagellations which were frequent in the course of the narrative were executed with much vigor and feeling he turned out a great number of these works in the course of the term as well as faces and pen and ink with moving tongues and rolling eyes and these he would present to a few favored friends with a secretive and self-deprecatory giggle amid scenes and companions like these paul sat out the evening's hours on his hard seat which was just at the junction of two forms an exquisitely uncomfortable position as all who have tried it will acknowledge until the time for going to bed came round again he dreaded the hours of darkness but there was no help for it to protest would have been madness just then and once more he was forced to pass a night under the roof of crichton house it was even worse than the first though this was greatly owing to his own obstinacy the boys if less subdued were in a better temper than the evening before and found it troublesome to keep up a feud when the first flush of resentment had died out there was a general disposition to forget his departure from the code of schoolboy honor and give him an opportunity of retrieving the past but he would not meet them halfway. His repeated repulses by the doctor and all the difficulties that beset his return to freedom had made him very sulky and snappish. He had not patience or adaptability enough to respond to their advances and only shrank from their rough good nature, which naturally checked the current of good feeling. Then, when the lights were put out, someone demanded a story most of the bedrooms possessed a professional storyteller and in one there was a young romancist who began a stirring history the very first night of the term which always ran on until the night before the holidays and if his hearers were apt to yawn at the sixth week of it he himself enjoyed and believed in it keenly from beginning to end Dick Bultitude had been a valued raconteur, it appeared, and his father found accordingly to his disgust that he was expected to amuse them with a story. When he clearly understood the idea, he rejected it with so savage a snarl that he soon found it necessary to retire under the bedclothes to escape the general indignation that followed. Finding that he did not actively resent it, the real Dick would have had the occupant of the nearest bed out by the ears in a minute. 
They profited by his prudence to come to his bedside, where they pillowed his weary head, with their own pillows, till the slight offered them was more than avenged. After that, Mr. Bultitude, with the breath half beaten out of his body, lay writhing and sputtering on his hard, rough bed till long after silence had fallen over the adjoining beds, and the sleepy hum of talk in the other bedrooms had died away. Then he, too, drifted off into wild and troubled dreams, which, at their maddest, were scattered into blankness by a sudden and violent shock, which jerked him, clutching and grasping at nothing, on to the cold, bare boards, where he rolled, shivering. An earthquake, he thought, an explosion, gas or dynamite. He must go and call the children. Bowler, the plate! But the reality to which he woke was worse still. Tipping and Coker had been patiently pinching themselves to keep awake until their enemy should be soundly asleep, in order to enjoy the exquisite pleasure of letting down the mattress, and, too dazed and frightened even to swear, Paul gathered up his bedclothes and tried to draw them about him as well as he might and seek sleep, which had lost its security. The Garuda Stone had done one grim and cruel piece of work, at least in its time. End of chapter 6